Most journalists prefer reporting stories instead of becoming the subject of them. But if you're a female journalist in Iran, it's hard to avoid the latter. One of the features of the recent protests have been the number of female journalists arrested for covering Jenna Masa Amini's death. Amini was taken into custody by the state's morality police for allegedly wearing her a job improperly. Neil Ofar Hamedi was the first reporter to cover Amini's death, even doing so from the hospital where she died. Another female reporter, Elahi Mohammadi, covered the protest following Amini's death that took place in her hometown of Sakez in northern Kurdistan province. Both women ended up arrested on espionage charges. Another journalist, Nazila Marufian, said that she was jailed and sentenced to two years on charges of anti-government propaganda and spreading false news after interviewing Amina's father and publishing her report. Being a reporter in Iran is tough regardless of gender, but if you're a woman covering these protests, the target on your back is magnified. The Iranian authorities have made it clear that they'll stop at nothing to silence women advocating for their autonomy. Nearly 100 reporters have been jailed since the protests began. At least 40% of them have been women, an extraordinarily high number relative to their representation in the industry. Some reporters who can no longer report the truth from inside of Iran flee and continue their reporting from abroad. But danger follows them, even outside of the country. Exiled Iranian journalist Masi Alinejad has faced death threats here in Brooklyn for her outspokenness against the Iranian government. Born in Iran, Masi was one of the few female political reporters challenging Iranian politicians, but was eventually punished for it. She lost access to parliament in 2005 after writing a piece exposing corruption amongst government ministers and was forced to flee Iran in 2009. Since the government can't reach her, they've harassed her family. I don't have any weapon. My weapon is this. My weapon is in, it's my mobile. And I have like followers on my Instagram and my social media. I published the videos of Iranian mothers who kill, the Iranian regime killed their sons. I just give them voice. I give voice to these women. I want to actually use your platform because you never see these women. This brave woman protested against forced hijab in the bus. That was her face. And Iranian regime brought her on TV in forced hijab last week. Sepide Rashno, she denounced herself on TV. She denounced me. Only last week, four women protested against forced hijab. I published their video. Their video went viral, being watched millions of times. And the government took them on Iranian national television, forced them in hijab, saying that this is all about Massey, Massey being... Mm. It's not about me. It's about Iranian brave women within the society. And all I do, I just give them a voice. January 27th, the Justice Department announced that three men were arrested in a murder-for-hire plot to kill Masi. As recently as 2020 and 2021, Iranian intelligence officials and assets plotted to kidnap Alinejad from within the United States for rendition to Iran in an effort to silence her criticism of the regime, the department said in a statement. Masi released her own statement after the men's arrest, vowing that the Iranian government's threats will not silence her. But a previous appearance on CNN crystallizes her resolve. 
all these dictators, they learn from each other. It's like they have a book and they follow all the rules. They assassinate people, Russian government, Venezuelan government. It's not about just me. If the U.S. government, the European do not get united as much as the dictators are united, we're not going to be safe. Even you're not going to be safe. I'm an American citizen. I was practicing my freedom of speech. I left Iran to be safe here in America. In America. It has been one year I moved from different safe houses. I deserve to have a, to have a normal life. The dictators are helping each other, but the democratic countries, no. My demand, I mean, I'm being very honest. It's clearly that the Iranian regime is watching me. They're reading my words. They're following me. I have only one message for them. Can I use your camera and talk to them? Please, go ahead. Which camera? I really, I know that they're listening to me. This one. I want to tell you, Get, go to hell. I'm not scared of you. I have only one life. You care about power. I care about my dignity and freedom, like millions of other people inside Iran. I'm not scared of you. You can kill me, but you cannot kill the idea. The idea is just fighting for freedom, dignity. And here I have a message for Biden administration. Shut down the Islamic Republic intersection. Throw out all the Iranian diplomats. Why they are here? The Iranian regime twice challenged the U.S. government on U.S. soil. I deserve to have freedom in, in the United States of America. Kick them out. If you don't believe me, they're going to come after the more American citizens. Yagani Rezaian, who we'll call Yegi in this episode, is a respected reporter in her own right and can relate to Masih's story. She was with her husband, Jason, on July 22nd, 2014, when Iranian law enforcement stormed their apartment in Tehran and ransacked it for hours before arresting them. Jason was then the Washington Post's bureau chief in Tehran, and Yegi was Bloomberg's correspondent on the ground. One of the officers aimed a handgun at Jason's head, as other officers forced them to give up passwords to their laptops and access to his personal safe. Jason's story of being in prison for a year and a half on trumped-up espionage charges is well known. But what about Yegi? In most media reports, she's referred to as Jason's wife or as an addition to his story. Outside of a few public talks, there aren't a lot of stories chronicling her journey supporting Jason as he languished in prison and how she blazed trails for female journalists in Iran. Jason to tell you that Yegi was the single most important person who kept him going where he didn't believe that he survived prison. You will hear about that and more on this episode of Liberating Iran. When Jason Rezaian arrived in Iran in 2009, then-President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was just re-elected to a second term. Many Iranians believe the election was rigged, sparking off what is now known as the Green Movement protests. Jason was freelancing at the time, and Yegi was a graduate student pursuing a degree in English translation and working as a fixer for Western reporters. She and Jason met while in Dubai, a home base where foreign journalists tend to meet in the Middle East. They hit it off immediately and started dating. Eventually, Yegi started working as his fixer. And as we were 
dating throughout the the months I was helping him and some other American journalists who who were at the time in Iran and reporting with some translations like a like a fixer kind of thing helping them with understanding of the context and the the culture and sometimes accompanying to to different places like the museum or or some government offices to help them and that really um sparked an interest in me of of writing the pieces myself rather than just being a facilitator or or the translator it took a couple of years of training by practice i never went to journalism school but just by practicing with smaller opportunities to finally apply for for a position at bloomberg news and i became the bloomberg's correspondent in tehran which which was a big deal for a non-native non-native English speaker, but also not just from the Bloomberg's point of view, from the Iranian's point of view, because I was not a foreigner and I was a woman. I was a very young woman. I was like 26, 27 at the time. So it it was, I have to say, a little bit shocking, even for the officials at the at the ministry that issues press cards for journalists when I went and then I and I applied because unfortunately it is still a country that as we have seen during these protests the misogyny is so engraved in the system I was not considered trustworthy of doing the job maybe with with uh, by Iranian officials but I think I did a good job and I have this sweet memory of running after Iran's uh, former foreign minister, Salehi, and trying to ask him a question, which at the time the officials didn't like me to do so. <laughs> and then the next day they summoned me to the to the ministry and instead of calling me by my, by first name or by my maiden name, they called me Miss Bloomberg. <laughs> And said, Miss Bloomberg, your behavior yesterday was not good. If you continue pressing on the foreign minister, we need to revoke your your press card and basically uh, trying to give me a lesson and threatening me. Women around the world endure misogyny, but Yegi says it was especially challenging in Iran. During her years covering politicians, she used her gender to her advantage when she could, all while not crossing professional boundaries. Yegi describes it something of a, a double-edged sword. On one hand, she was able to conduct interviews with conservative male and female officials because they assumed she wouldn't ask any questions of consequence. One time, she was allowed to ask Ahmadinejad a question during a nationally televised press conference after his 2009 presidential election victory. One of Ahmadinejad's media people marked Yegi as an innocent girl incapable of asking tough questions and yeah the dude really told her that before the event started right just to let you know how wild it is over there so yegi said i right, i'm gonna just prove you wrong when her turn came she mentioned to the president that iranians hit the streets in protest of his election victory because they felt the process was rigged that was the same election in which a protester neda aha sultan was shot dead her death was captured on video and spread across social media, sparking international outrage. Yegi asked Ahmadinejad how he planned to unify Iranian society. 
given Iran's brutal reaction to the protesters. He kind of like laughed at me multiple times. Like he, instead of like verbalizing his answer, he kept saying, <laughs> like he said that, oh, you ask a tough question. Um, and this was being broadcasted. So many of my friends and family, everybody was watching that, including my mom. And apparently my mom told me this later that she was like biting her her lips saying yeah don't ask this question this is going to put you in problem please shut up and 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 i kept pressing him so i was like mr president this is not the answer to my question can you please elaborate and my mom was like oh no please stop so she told me later on that she was very very worried and obviously the president's team wasn't pleased that same aide found her after the presser and said and I quote, Miss Bloomberg, you ask an aggressive question and press the president with follow-ups. That was not our deal. Now, she didn't face any serious repercussions, but Yegi told me she had to walk a fine line as an Iranian working for a foreign media outlet. It is complicated because working for a foreign media is different from from a domestic media because there are times that officials don't want to talk to you, but at the same time, there are times that they desperately want to talk to you to be able to get their message across to foreign audience, especially Western audience or sometimes Western uh, governments. So there are times that you are like desperately wanted, like they would like to talk to you, but then there are other times that no. So I always try to keep my relationship professional, but also on on good terms in order to be able to get invited to events or conferences and things like that. Because if you don't officially get invited, there's no other way to to attend or be able to uh, cover these kinds of government events. But in order to um, sometimes send a request to like have a either off the record interview or on the record interview, but like a private one, like an exclusive interview with officials. That's usually very difficult. Usually Iranian officials, governments of the system are not very open to accepting media. They are almost all the time very suspicious of of foreign journalists. As, as you can see, they constantly label foreign journalists as spies or eyes and ears of the foreign governments. Um, so these labelings are, are very common. I think in my case, um, it was a little bit better because I was originally Iranian. So they would have a little bit more trust in me or they would see me as still an Iranian who... I was hoping they think I'm first of all, I'm not I wasn't definitely a spy, but but I was hoping that they have a better understanding of what I was trying to do. There's one more layer here, and that's um, where the gender comes into play. And I think because I was a woman, it is easier to access male officials because Obviously, they would love to chat with a woman, but also they see you as a woman kind of like naive and unimportant and not threatening. So in a 
belittling way, in a humiliating way, in the core of it, maybe you get a better access than a, than a male colleague. How did you take advantage of that? It's a very fine line trail, and I tell you why. Because as much as I always try to act very professional and keep my relationship serious, sometimes a little smile can open a door for you as a woman. But then if you do so, you have to be extra cautious because it can also imply that you were willing to do more than just your professional job and send the wrong message to these officials who are, I would say, all at the same time that they are um, acting as like, really big, serious Muslim men. They're also very misogynist, but also sexual abuse is is a common theme. So I was always trying to make sure that if I'm sitting in a room with one of these officials, um, uh, as much as my, my womanhood would give me an advantage or an upper hand, um, but make sure that I don't put myself in a position that they can take advantage of me because, as I said, it's a very, very common theme. Before the Me Too movement was ever known in, in the U.S., there were many, many years that Iranian women, Iranian actors and actresses and, and female journalists were, were speaking out about these these misogynies and these bad behaviors of, of high-profile Iranian men, especially some government officials. So it's a very tricky line. But there's one good advantage to that, and is that as a woman, I always thought that I had a very good access to Iranian female officials, and they were open to talk to me. At the time when I was Bloomberg's correspondent, we had a female vice president and and a female uh, foreign um, spokesperson who were easier to access and talk to, um, and we had a good understanding and relationship because they are obviously willing to talk to women more than more than males so that that was a good advantage but also i always thought that i had a good access to that section of the society who are more religious women who may not be able to talk to any any random male journalists like if i wanted to interview one of these very serious muslim conservative women um i had a better access to to them it's like i remember reading an interview i think many years a, a few years ago from clarice o'ward saying when she traveled to afghanistan uh, she was she had an easier time talking to afghan women than than other male colleagues it's because those societies are still very conservative very traditional not necessarily welcoming to a random um, male journalist so why right. it sounds like there are just a lot of social codes that you as an iranian woman uh, working as a journalist in Iran 
you have to always be aware of it. And I always look at these type of conversations as an education for me, because right. as a man who travels and interviews abroad, I'm in mostly in Eastern Europe, I don't have to worry about these, what safety, right. uh, unless I'm in a war zone, which is something that everyone has to deal with regardless of gender. But I, I, I don't, I never had to keep in mind these social cues and, and navigate in the way that you did. I'm curious if you um, feel like you had to make any compromises to keep your accreditation, meaning did you, I'm not saying how it influences a story, but the compromise being you could not do the same things or have the same mentality that an American journalist had. Yeah, that's true. No, no, I agree with your assessment. There are so many hard lines to make sure you don't cross or there are some moments that you feel like um, you can navigate this relationship and maybe cross a little bit. So there are so many layers in the society that as a as a female journalist, you have to manage and navigate the relationships in a society like Iran that is both run by theocracy, by so-called pious um, male official. You you have to manage all those. So at times, sometimes it gets tiring. I remember sometimes I, I would come home and I was like, ah, thank God it's finished. I did this interview without um, any problem and hope. Cause there's another threat, and if you don't manage your relationship, if you cannot navigate that that relationship in a way that is satisfying to the person you are interviewing, and if that person is in a high position, they can immediately get in touch with the office of foreign foreign journalist and and revoke your your um accreditation so doing it in a way that you're still respectful and professional and take care of your um, physical and mental safety and being able to run the interview in a way that the guy feels appreciated and valued in order to be able to talk to you or continue talking to you um there's a lot going on in it's not just grabbing your phone and your voice recorder and your camera and go sit down relax and just have a friendly or maybe a serious conversation and just go to your office and then you are done i would say journalism in places that um is ruled by religion in general, but also some of these more conservative, some of these more misogynist societies like Iran or Afghanistan that is ruled by Taliban. It's a very complicated job and at times obviously more difficult for women than men. Yeah. Did you have any close calls that you can think of or want to talk about? There were a couple of occasions that I decided not to go forward with the interview request because I felt like I'm going to be put in a position that is going to make me uh, uncomfortable as a woman. Um, so um, despite really being eager to do that interview because that person was important and I was interested and, and my media was interested in hearing 
um, what he had to say. I made the call and explained it to my editors at the time that, you know what, I am not willing to go move forward with this because I know there are, by agreeing to my request, there are other intentions involved, so I'm not going to do it. One of the things I like about reporters who aren't from the Western world is that they don't pretend to separate their personal stakes from their jobs. I'm used to mainstream reporters, usually white ones, preaching their objectivity bullshit to the masses, selling themselves as pure, unaffected disseminators of the truth. People from the so-called developing world don't have the luxury of disassociating their professional lives from their personal well-being. It's not uncommon for reporters in Eastern Europe, for example, where I spend much of my time, to report on corruption one day and join street protests against the criminal minds they report on. Being a reporter and an activist isn't taboo in a so-called developed world, and many reporters from non-Western nations don't run away from that title. In fact, they embrace it. Though Yegi didn't join the protest as a reporter, she has no shame sharing that she joined the protest against the Iranian state back in 2009 before her journalism career started. I had this freedom of participating as an Iranian citizen, as an Iranian woman who was placed under the gender apartheid of, of the system for, for many, many years. But later when I became a journalist, I was uh, still furated and furious with everything that was happening in my country, but I saw my role in a more constructive way instead of just protesting and and saying some chanting some slogans and then coming back home uh, this time i had a bigger tool right more powerful tool i was being able to instead of hearing my own voice in the streets of tehran give voice to those who were out um so this time if i was participating in any protest which i did in the aftermath of that green movement uh, when other things happened uh, i was more observant i was more careful in giving voice to my my people and make sure that not only they are heard by their own system that they are protesting against but also their righteous demands for freedom and equality and and happiness was heard throughout the world so I could bring more attention to them and their demands and create allies for them in, in the Western world as I would want right now to ask American media to keep continuing covering these protests. See, this is what made Yegi's reporting better than most journalists who claim to be so-called objective. She was connected to the trauma. Unlike her Western colleagues who could just pack up their bags and flee when things got too hot, Yegi didn't have that option. But Jason, whom she met in Dubai back in 2009 amidst the protests, was different. Born in the Bay Area to an Iranian immigrant father who fled Tehran after the revolution and a mother from Chicago, Jason lived an upper-middle-class life, one that many immigrant families aspire to. That good old American dream, good schools, safe neighborhoods, a university degree, and eventually a good job that will allow for following generations to realize similar success. After graduating from the new school in New York City, Jason started working at a few newspapers and magazines. But he eventually caught the travel bug and decided to file stories from Iran. I spent a lot of time 
in my earlier years traveling and, and going to different places. And it was always most fascinating to me to understand the experiences of people who were different than me, right? That's Jason Rezaian, the Washington Post reporter who was jailed in Iran for 544 days on false charges of being a U.S. spy. In childhood, you know, that meant girls. As you grow up, it means somebody whose skin is different color than yours, right? As you explore the world and start to go to other places, people who, who are reared in different religions and, and cultures. And Iran, although I was connected to it through, you know, family ties, my dad and his sisters and you know, cousins and aunts and uncles, um, it was just a, you know, a really different kind of place than anywhere else I had been. And, you know, I, I showed up with assumptions about a place as anybody would when they show up anywhere. And it, it, it was an, uh, a willful act to put those aside and try and really figure out what was going on. Yegi noticed how Jason spoke with pretty much anybody to help add texture to his reporting, something she didn't see in other journalists she worked with. It was really interesting um, because I always saw how he would have the longest conversations with taxi drivers or or a little um, like a, a guy who has a little vending machine on the corner of the street selling street food or or instead of like chasing officials right because you can always ask for an interview with some officials and and get their opinions in fact sometimes they chase uh, foreign media because they want to be mentioned in foreign news but but local people and their stories and their everyday struggles and and the beauties of of their everyday life was not necessarily included in the in the coverage of of Iran and the coverage was at times only focused on hard politics one of the stories she recalls was the last piece Jason wrote before he was arrested it was about Iran's national baseball team it's a very beautiful story and and who the coach was who grew up in the same hometown as as Jason in northern San Francisco Bay Area and and how sanctions affected their playing possibilities because there were teams that they could not play with but they also because of sanctions were struggling to to bring the equipment like the balls and the bat from United States because they were American goods and and American luxury goods so um i remember t- him telling me that imagine the national team only has like 40 baseballs and they cannot lose them because the Federation cannot replace them. So at the end of the day, after they play, when it gets dark, all these players have to go around and collect these balls and find them because they need them again for tomorrow. It's not that like American baseball team, they have endless number of, of baseballs. Now, people think to themselves, there's baseball in Iran. You know, as soon as, as, as you see that headline, I've got you. Right. And you start reading it and it makes the people playing baseball, makes Iranians much more accessible to you as an American than if you're thinking about them as somebody that's just burning the stars and the stripes on the street. And I'll tell you, the feedback that I got 
from that piece in those two or three days before I got arrested was the greatest feedback of any piece that I ever got. And, and, and the, the other journalists in town correspondents picked up the phone and called me and said, you know, three or four of them, Jason, how come I never wrote that piece? It's because you're not me. You're not an Iranian American, right? Yes. You're writing to an American audience, but I grew up in, you know, in the, experience of being uh, an American of an Iranian background and and trying to communicate that experience back to a general American audience. And for me, that was my secret sauce. That's Draymond's secret sauce. That's your secret sauce, right? We're able to 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 talk to a group of people from a similar upbringing about an experience that they probably are never going to be able to physically touch, right? And as journalists, what are we doing, especially if we're foreign correspondents, if not that? We're trying to bring the experiences of faraway places to a general American audience or a niche American audience that that is not going to be able to go to Ukraine, that is not going to be able to go to Iran, and inform them about what, what that situation is all about. What neither Jason nor Yegi knew was that they would be the next biggest story coming out of Iran. A few days later, Iranian law enforcement stormed their apartment and arrested them on espionage charges. Breaking news on the American reporter being held in Iran for more than a year on spying charges. We're learning this morning that Jason Rezaian has been convicted. ABC's Brian Ross is here with the latest. Good morning, Brian. Well, good morning, Robin. The conviction of the Washington Post reporter Rezaian as a U.S. spy is being denounced this morning by his editors as an outrageous injustice. The announcement this morning on Iranian TV came after his arrest more than a year ago and a trial that was held largely in secret. Rezaian's crime seems to be that he was an American reporter and a good one. He is accused of espionage for, among other things, providing up-to-the-minute news from Iran and writing reports for the Washington Post that factions inside the Iranian government considered biased. He's innocent. He's an accredited journalist. He's been caught up in larger forces. Uh, inside Iran. Six weeks before his arrest, Rezaian talked about living in Iran with Anthony Bourdain of CNN. Look, I love it and I hate it, you know, but it's home. Rezaian's only contact with the outside world has been with his Iranian wife and his mother, who told ABC News her son wishes he could be covering the news instead of being the news. Unfortunately, he's been in prison for the last year. He and his wife, who is also a journalist, have not been able to. That woman you hear bursting into tears is Yegi. She's with Jason's mom outside of Yevin prison, where declared enemies of the state are held. She was released from that very prison just months earlier. Jason had been behind bars for more than a year when this news clip aired. The sorrow in Yegi's cries aren't unfamiliar. Many people have stood outside of Yevin prison demanding the release of their loved ones, often on what human rights advocates say are politically motivated charges. While it's not surprising that Jason and Yegi were arrested, the events surrounding that day revealed just how precarious reporters' lives are and also how the power dynamics in Iranian politics work. On July 22, 2014, the day of their arrests, she and Jason went to Iran's Ministry of Islamic Guidance to get their press passes renewed. Both Jason and I woke up at 8 a.m. We went to the ministry. Our press credentials were renewed and we both received some kind of like a, 
some kind of plaque mm, valuing our our work in the year before commemorating and and appreciating our coverage of Iran in the foreign news so we felt really good right it was also my mom's birthday so that night we were invited to my mom's 56th surprise party we worked a little bit during the day life as normal nothing strange or alarming by 7 6 37 p.m as we were getting dressed to leave our apartment i started feeling that something strange is happening to my gmail and my facebook i'm getting these alarms um, these messages notifications on my iphone saying someone is accessing your gmail and confirm if this is you you know this is something very alarming especially and anytime right if if you get those notifications on your phone right now but especially where you live you know that you're always being watched you know that you're in a country like iran your social media is being watched your reporting is being watched they have your home address they have your phone number everything so i mentioned that to jason and he encountered the same issue and we were trying to see if we can change our passwords and and block whoever that was accessing our accounts and it took us an hour um to figure it out and we think we did it we are not sure because we never logged back into those accounts after that moment and like all of a sudden by 8 p.m as we were like still playing with our on our phone and laptops um the door was knocked and um at first three security guards in plain clothes um not in like any army outfit or anything in just random jeans and suit and shirt um uh, entered our apartments with guns and they were wearing face mask um like the surgical mask like what we wore during the the pandemic and um in less than seven or eight minutes another 30 guards showed up into our building and they threatened jason with the gun on his on his face eventually they were handcuffed taken into a parking lot put in a van blindfolded and driven to yavin prison which ironically was just five minutes away from their house, the neighborhood where Yegi grew up and lived since childhood. And yeah, here we are. We we ended up in Evin Prison, which is one of the most notorious prisons in the world, filled with a very smart, very educated, very sophisticated, some of the brightest uh, of, of Iranians. Um, yeah, that was the beginning of... Of the ordeal it was a very strange situation but growing up in retrospect now that i'm thinking it didn't feel unknown to me you know like growing up i always heard the story of friends or families or neighbors who went through a similar experience so i guess i had more or maybe easier understanding of what was going on unlike jason who was thinking that uh, this is a mistake and they will soon find out that they made a mistake and this will 
take care of itself and it's going to be resolved. I think part of it was his happy upbringing in the Bay Area. <laughs> oh, he thought like FBI doesn't randomly raid anyone's house. I was like, this is a little bit different. So I ended up in a Vin prison and under lots of heavy interrogations and in a solitary. What was that like? And What was the interrogations like? Uh, it's crazy. It really is crazy because you are dealing with some of the most illogical people who are making, pardon my language, shut up from nothing. People who do not have any reasoning and people who have guns, so there's no way that you can win over them. And, and forceful and you were kept under bad conditions in solitary confinement, which they do it in order to make sure they break you so they confess to whatever they want and get you um, to have wrong confessions. Yeah, it, it, so I was there for three months and then um, Jason sat there for another 18 months. Um, because soon they realized that they have arrested an Iranian-American who is very valuable and they can use him. He's a journalist, so that's a crime by itself in that country, and they can use him as a negotiating... Like a bargaining chip, yeah. Exactly, like a bargaining chip. As I was talking with Yagi, my mind immediately assumed she and Jason were detained under the Mahmoud Ahmadinejad administration. But Yagi corrected me. No, we were detained under Hassan Rouhani. And his administration was happy with us. That same day, they renewed our press credentials. So in Iran, there are competing forces against each other. You know, we were arrested by our IRGC with the Revolutionary Guards, and they were not at the time working and cooperating with Rouhani. They were trying to uh, sabotage Rouhani's effort of, of nuclear negotiations with the U.S. That's why they were looking for an American prisoner. That's fascinating to me, but but that goes to my point. So ironically, you would think that this would happen under the Ahmadinejad administration. Because he was a hardliner, yes. All right, and then Rouhani, relatively speaking, according to everyone I've spoken to for this series, is the reformer person who wanted to uh, have better relationships with the West. That This was the problem. He, he was the president, but he did not have ultimate power. The supreme leader and his office and the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards, who protect supreme leader... Those are the ones who have the ultimate power. So they were sabotaging Rouhani's efforts for for opening the door for the negotiations with the Western world, especially United States. There was the story of the phone calls that Rouhani and, and the President Obama had. But IRGC was the entire time trying to sabotage those efforts. And, and during the course of one year, they have arrested seven Americans to destroy these negotiations. And then what U.S. ultimately had to do was to start a separate line of negotiations about these Americans who were detained in Iran. As Yegi explained to me, Iran is a theocracy run by religious ideologues. Sometimes the system will produce a moderate, and Rouhani was one of them. And so is his foreign minister, Javad Zarif, who spent time in the United States. 
They understood that if you don't negotiate with the West, and especially America, their government and economy would crumble under sanctions. So their intention wasn't to negotiate with the West just for the simple sake of having access to travel and business. The effort was to ensure that the current power structure stays in place. There are multiple competing powers within the regime, and each have their own military, intelligence, and financial resources. The Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps is the most powerful, hard-lying actor in Iranian politics. Yegi says the Revolutionary Guard Corps is responsible for her and Jason's detention. Being jailed in Avin prison is as bad as you think it is. And it's the worst possible place to go if you're deemed an enemy of the state, as Yegi and Jason were. I was in a six by four solitary confinement for 72 nights. So as you can imagine, there was no window. There was no access to outside except that big metal gate that I couldn't open, right? Only the prison guards can open it. No access to fresh air except 10 minutes a day, sometimes every couple of days. And that's it. There are some prisoners who are not a political prisoners or security prisoners and they have access to daily newspaper being delivered to them in prison but not in my case or in Jason's case because we were political prisoners it's maddening it's it makes you drive crazy right no having access to no news no information i didn't know what the outside world was talking about us i didn't even know if my editors or jason's editor knew that we were mm, arrested and taken to Evin prison i didn't know where my family was or i had no access to telephone or conversations with them I remember three weeks into our arrest, my interrogator told me that it was reported in the news that Jason and I were killed in a car crash, and that's it, and no one is following up our case, no one cares. So I was like, oh, really? How's that possible? Um, so it's like heartbreaking knowing that no one is following your case. But I remember on day 27th of my imprisonment, while I'm in solitary confinement, a newspaper was mistakenly delivered to my cell rather than a different prisoner. And I start devouring it, like going through this newspaper, reading every single word, because I knew this must be a mistake. And I was worried about someone finding out and coming and taking it away from me. And it was really heartbreaking because on the front page was the story about Robin Williams dying. Um, like he died a couple of days ago and he was my favorite actor, comedian. And he was from the same hometown in Bay Area as, as Jason. So I was always hoping that one time we can go and find his house. And I, I mean him, but, um, so it was like really sad to find out he was dead. But also in one of the columns later on, I saw that um, domestic Iranian newspaper, um, reported on Jason's situation and his arrest and, and covered. Most likely we're going to be charged by espionage. So I'm sitting there reading this. It's terrifying, right? Thinking that, oh my God, my country is accusing me of of espionage and I'm going to be tried with my husband. And I knew immediately that I don't even know how I know it, 
but I knew that espionage carries a 10-year sentence at least minimum. And there are cases of um, execution. So I was like terrified. If if you can imagine, it's a lonely situation and your heart literally like is about to stop beating because it's so scary because you're left alone with no protection, no support, no, you don't have any voice. And I always uh, described solitary confinement to a grave. You are alive, but they put you in a grave. That's the purpose. They want you to believe you are dead and you have no power or control, not even over your own thinking. Eventually, the Iranian authorities released her after three months. Now, you think she'd be thrilled to be free, but leaving Avin prison is never straightforward. Oh, it was crazy. I was released on in the evening and uh, my parents came to pick me up. Um, there were confusions about whether the security forces will drop me somewhere random in the streets. And I told them I don't have any money. I don't have my key to my house. They cannot do it. They're responsible for my safety. They, 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 um, raided our house and took me away from it and they cannot leave me on the corner of any random street this is not fair this is not islamic mercy so i was like trying to shame them into such decision and they eventually they said yeah okay we oh, so they were like threatening to just drop you off in the middle of the street and they were yeah. saying that yeah, that's what they do with most cases. And you know what? Uh, when they do that, they don't take you near your house. They take you like so far away in a very random road outside the city and they just drop you there with no money, no phone, no contact information. In multiple cases, I heard of stories of people walking back or begging from a stranger to give them a phone to call one of their family members to come and pick them up. And imagine I was arrested in the middle of summer and then I was being released in, in an early fall evening. So it was like quite cold and I didn't have any warm clothes, no shoes because they took me in with like flip-flops and eventually I like shamed them in into that and they said okay your parents are gonna come pick you up which is what happened um there are very few experiences that can compare with the level of fear excitement confusion uncertainty pain I remember those last couple of last hours when it was clear to me that I was being released. I was terrified for Jason's well-being and safety in prison to the fact that I begged them. I was like holding on to the doorknob that, no, I'm not going. I'm not going without him. I don't want to be released without him. Keep me so at least he knows I'm somewhere here in this compound with him. I was honestly worried that they're going to make him disappear or I was worried for his health because he always had high blood pressure issue and it was not clear whether they were giving him his medicines. So I was worried that what if he has a heart attack due to stress or something or they beat him up. It took me 10 days to be able to walk back to our apartment. So for 10 days, I was paralyzed in my childhood 
bed in the corner of my childhood bedroom in my parents' apartment. took me 10 days to be able to pull myself together and get an extra key that my mom had from our apartment and walk back to that apartment and start cleaning up and packing and because I was forced to give give the apartment back. And then it took me another two months from the day that I was released in order to be able to go to talk to any lawyer about our case because I was so scared that I should not go or to meet any officials or deliver handwritten letters to any government offices and plea on Jason's behalf or or even demand like a visit in prison to see him, which based on Islamic law should be a natural right for any married couple. Around this time, a lot of political moves in DC and Tehran were being made in connection with Jason's detention. The Iran deal was being hammered out between the Rouhani and Obama administrations, and Jason's release was closely tied to it. Yegi had no idea about the specifics though. She was still getting over the trauma of being in solitary confinement and stressed over the uncertainty of Jason's prison sentence. She was fearful he'd die in prison and was trying to gather the emotional and personal strength to do something productive. Her job and reputation took a major hit and she was left to pick up the pieces by herself. So she did the only thing she felt she could do, hire a lawyer. It wasn't for filing a lawsuit. It was more um, about hiring a lawyer in case they're going to start taking us to the court. So we have a, if they ever let us to have a lawyer. But also, personally, I needed a better understanding of the law and what happens when can we if if they they sentence him to for example 10 years when can i appeal how can i appeal what would the appeal be if if we will ever have the chance of appealing to the supreme court yegi was unable to work as a reporter the state wouldn't allow it and the stigma of being accused of espionage alienated her from her friends colleagues and many of her family members so she was navigating the trauma of her own experience and the fear and uncertainty of Jason's criminal case all by herself. There were moments that I was walking in the street alone and I was sure that I was being followed. I didn't want my my parents or my only sister to come with me to any of these meetings that I had with lawyers because I knew that the government uh, will immediately open a file up a case against them, so I was trying to protect them. I was very alone, Trell. It's a police estate ruled by theocracy. You doubt your neighbor, you doubt your friend, because you are not sure who's working for them. Anyone who drinks a sip of alcohol will disappear from your life because they are worried for their own safety and security, right? So I was lonely to its core. All of my friends left me for their own safety and I was fine with it because I wanted to make sure no one will get in trouble for their association to me or my husband's friends, family. My own uncle didn't call or 
come to my parents' house for over six months because they were so worried. They were worried that my parents' house is being watched and if they come, they're going to be traced and things. So it's, it's crazy. I was, there were so many days and hours and moments that I literally walked, just wandered around in this big, crazy, loud city of Tehran, which is similar somehow to New York. Imagine you, I was walking just in the street thinking, oh God, where do I go? Who do I see? Like, who do I talk to? Where do I get help from? Yegi told me that she was released on 12 conditions, including the fact that she couldn't talk to media, uh, she couldn't post to social media, and she could no longer be a reporter. And she also had to give up her and Jason's apartment. I was forced to move back in with my parents. And then they verbally told me that they put me on their house arrest. And I think that made me extra worried and and afraid about getting out and doing anything that's why i think i was paralyzed for two months and then you know what after two months one day i was like one evening i was sitting in my parents couch and my sister came in and we had a conversation and i was telling her i don't know what to do and she said you know what, fuck it. Do you want to sit on this couch and feel miserable? Or do you want to push? And I said, you know what? I don't have anything to lose anymore. My husband is in prison. I've lost my job and home and identity. The news is constantly talking about us every night. They created two monsters out of us. Me as an Iranian woman marrying an American foreign journalist. So... Um, and and he's like the most wanted um, spy of all time. What else do I have to lose? Let me get out and and see how much I can push these boundaries. And the worst that can happen is that they're gonna come and arrest me and put me back in that jail, which they have threatened me with it again multiple times. So Yegi worked with her local lawyer to speak out about what was happening to Jason and what she went through in a being prison. She basically shamed the Iranian government over the trumped-up charges against them, and it worked to some extent. Iranian authorities allowed her to visit Jason in prison once a month and take him home-cooked food, some books to read, and clean clothes. I think it was very, very important because, as I said earlier, first of all, it gave me a purpose. I would wake up every morning at 6, 6.30 and have a mission. Today, I'm going to these government offices, hand delivering letters to foreign ministry and the presidential palace. And I'm meeting with these human rights officials and I'm meeting with these UN officials and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And I'm meeting with a lawyer and I'm going to gather more information. And I was a bridge with Washington Post that was advocating on his behalf from from United States and my brother-in-law who was our biggest advocate at the time to managing all of the communications outside the country in United States with um, the lawyers that Washington Post hired on our behalf so it gave me a personal purpose to fight as much as I was able to but also 
I was able to go and visit him and keep my head high and tell him um, about the efforts I was trying to do on his behalf rather than going and say, oh, no, I can't do anything, you know, I'm so miserable and weak that I don't think I can stand up to these tyrants. She swallowed her fears and moved forward anyway. Each visit, Yegi was strip searched. She and Jason were denied physical contact. Prison windows separated them and they spoke to each other through phones. At least two people were always listening, recording their conversations, Yegi told me. On a couple of occasions, she and Jason met in person and were able to embrace. There was always a guard present in the room, along with cameras and listening devices. As Yegi was explaining all this stuff to me, I'm sure she had to be paranoid. She's advocating for a high-profile person to be released that's been accused of espionage. She had to always be mindful of what she said because anything could trigger them to arrest her again. So I was traumatized physically and mentally, and there were times that because of a single word that I, we exchanged or I told him, I was put back again in the cell for a few hours. I was forced to change into what now I call prison blues. So I was threatened that they're going to keep me. I went through all of these scenarios many, many times. So if I tell you that to this day, seven years later, I still deal with PTSD and I still go through therapy. Um, I don't think that surprised you or your audience. Do Yeah, I was going to ask you about the mental health component. So still you're getting um, therapy and mental health treatment. I think it's important that people know that that's a, a thing that you should do. Yes, yes. You Well, I think the scar of such an experience is so deep that um, probably it will never fully heal again. So... Um, you constantly need mental help and, and, and to be honest, believe it or not, there were multiple cases of couples going through this kind of trauma and their marriage broke. So not only Jason and I go like to therapy individually, but, um, it's hard to get back together with all of these traumas. In our case, I think I was lucky or we were lucky that um, I went through most of these steps with him. So later on, I could relate and understand what he has been through. In other cases, if the wife or husband um, hasn't been through as much as I have. Maybe it's more difficult. You become judgmental. You have no like complete understanding of what your spouse has been through, um, and and many other problems. So when I say the regime really tries to destroy people's lives, it's not an exaggeration. They try everything that they can. If you want to have your life back, you should work very hard to be able to heal some parts of that wound and go back to normal life. While Jason was locked up, he considered actually caving to the Iranian authorities and pleading guilty to the charges. But Yegi told him that she would not stick with the guy who punks out. And it really doesn't matter what the costs were. 
I owe this woman a debt of gratitude forever. You know, she was a rock for me when I needed a rock. There were moments when I was in prison and and the authorities were telling me that if I just plead guilty in court, they're going to let me go tomorrow. And she said, you know, that might that end up might end up being true. But then you're going to be forever the guy that went into court and admitted to things that he actually never did. And that's not somebody I'm going to be married to. So if you need to sit here for another you know, year, five years, 10 years and come out clean on the other side, that's what you're going to do. <laughs> and, you know, it takes some some balls, you know, to do that, especially in that that kind of society. And so, you know, that strength gave me fuel. And, you know, our encounters, our meetings every couple of weeks towards the end of, of my imprisonment was um, was fuel to keep going. Jason was freed from Avene prison on January 17th, 2016, 544 days after being taken into custody. He went to a hospital in Germany for medical treatment before heading home to the United States with Yegi. Both told me the trauma of being locked up in Iran still sits with them. It's been seven years since they were released and left Iran, but their bodies and minds are very much still there. Yegi and Jason told me that it's been especially difficult to watch the protests on the news. They're on the phone with their friends and family almost daily. That they can't be there to support them as they fight the government grates them. It's been really, really hard since mid-September that the, this these round of protests started in my homeland. Um, to the fact that uh, for a few weeks, my husband and I found ourselves just in our home, not cooking, not sleeping, not being able to fully take care of our son. And not, we didn't even celebrate his second birthday because we are constantly checking the news and checking in with friends and family on the ground and, and um trying to find out how we can be helpful to them. Um, um, I think there are times that I wish I was there so I could join the, my sisters and brothers on the ground and, and be there um, because I feel like it's um, more difficult being, being far um, and not knowing how to what are the ways that I can be more helpful to them and and help them in their in their rightful quest of um, finding their their freedoms? So it's it's very challenging. Um, it gets very emotional every time we see the news of someone um, uh, get executed and and more wave of arrests. Many journalists arrests. We we hear from friends and families. So it's it's painful. Yegi and Jason spend much of their time writing about Iran from Washington, D.C. Yegi works for the Committee to Protect Journalists and documents human rights abuses against Iranian reporters. Jason is a columnist for the Washington Post. He recently published a piece on the arrest of Wall Street Journal reporter Ivan Gerskovich, who was arrested in Russia on espionage charges, the same as Yegi and Jason when they were imprisoned in Iran. Journalism is not supposed to be dangerous, but in places like Iran, Russia, and other authoritarian states, it can very well cost you your life. Jason and Yegi risk their lives 
to tell the truth of the Iranian people. They're hopeful that the people they've spent years covering can sustain their resolve to fight the Iranian government until it finally falls. Only then can they return to Iran and reunite with their families and tell the stories of their lifetimes. Goal is to get rid of this regime, but um, we know that that is going to be very difficult and comes with a lot of costs, especially for people on the ground. And when we say cost, it's like the highest cost ever. Like everything they have is is their lives, right? Um, and many of them have sacrificed themselves and their lives. Um, yeah, my hope is to see in my lifetime that my country is free and it has a democratic government um, that spends the country's uh, resources for, for the people and it is a representative of the Iranian people and, and brings back freedom and democracy and happiness to my people so they can have a normal standard um, life and by that I mean like economic prosperity freedom in terms of women it's like the most basic basic um, choice like to be able to choose their own outfit in public or, or job positions or, or Iranian people's passport means something that um, they can freely travel and and be included in the international community rather than because of this regime's behaviors being um, isolated. So just just a free free democratic Iran. Thank you for listening to the fourth episode of Liberating Iran. We've spent more than two years working on this series and have a few people to thank. Financial support comes from Plowshares Fund. We also want to thank Outrider Foundation, which supports multimedia storytelling about nuclear threats and climate change. Learn more at outrider.org. Some of our news sources used for this episode come from the Washington Post, CNN, and others. Please go and buy Jason Rezaian's book titled Prisoner, My 544 Days in an Iranian Prison, Solitary Confinement, A Sham Trial, High Stakes Diplomacy, and the Extraordinary Efforts It Took to Get Me Out. Next week, in a final episode, you'll hear from Priscilla Kanku-Hoveda, who will talk about being black in Iran and how black Iranian voices have been left out of the conversation around the ongoing protests. All right, y'all. Talk to you next week. <laughs>